Hello and welcome to Pediatric Chat. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan and joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Paul Rosen. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jay. In this chat, we'll be talking about pediatric eye disease, and we have one of the experts in the field nationally, Dr. Sharon Lehman, who is Chief of Pediatric Ophthalmology here at Nemours. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to kick it off with our mom panel, who will introduce themselves and start with the questionings right away. So who wants up first? My name's Tiffany, and I'm a mom of three. My oldest is a girl. She's 10. My son is in the middle. He will be eight, and my baby will be turning five. She's a girl. And it's starting out with checking out eyes. Can you give me an idea what the difference is between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist? I've always wondered. Many people ask that question. It's a great question. The ophthalmologist is an MD, a medical doctor, who has gone to four years of college and then four years of medical school and then an internship, residency, and fellowship, and they are trained to take care of medical and surgical diseases of the eye. Optometrists go to optometry school and also treat eye disease, but in most cases are not surgeons and they do not go to medical school. Oh, wow, I never knew that. Many people are confused by the terms. And there are actually ophthalmologists that specialize in pediatric ophthalmology. So in addition to all of our other training, including residency, we do an extra year of training to specifically treat uh, medical and surgical diseases of children's eyes. So Sharon, when your pediatrician says, go get your son's eyes checked, do they mean an optometrist or an ophthalmologist? You know, what should we do as parents? I think it varies in some geographic locations. There may be a shortage of a one or the other. It also depends on your insurance. Some people have what's called a vision service plan, and they must get their primary eye care from an optometrist. In other cases, they have a choice. The American Academy of Pediatrics position is that you need to take your child to an eye care provider who is experienced in the care of children. And I think that that's an important distinction because there are ophthalmologists and optometrists who are not skilled in examining and determining what's wrong with the child and treating it. So I think that's the more important part of that question. When an optometrist sees a child with a medical or surgical disease of the eye, then they'll refer to the pediatric ophthalmologist. Hi, my name is Amy, and I have three healthy children, ages 13 and two 10-year-olds. My question is, when should my child's eye care really begin? At what age? The American Academy of Pediatrics just revised our policy statement on the examination and care of children's eyes. It was uh, just published in Pediatrics in uh, January. Parents can access all of those policies on the AAP website for free, and it answers a lot of these questions. The child's eye care begins in the newborn nursery. With that very first examination, the pediatrician inspects that the child reacts to light, the external examination is normal, and very importantly, that the anterior segment of the eye and the red reflex is present. When we take a picture, we sometimes see that red glow in the pupil, and uh, we don't like that in our pictures. But we, as pediatricians and eye doctors, want to see that red reflex when we examine the child because that means that there's nothing obstructing the light getting into the child's eye. And what we're seeing is that light bouncing back at us. And that means there's no obstruction of the visual axis from a cataract or other problem. So we like to see that red reflex. At every well visit, There is a schedule of what or how the child's eyes should be examined, as well as a history uh, by the pediatrician. The history will highlight if there is a specific problem, but they'll also do a screening. After the age of 12 months, before the child is verbal, 
they can use instrument-based screening, which is a device that's held a few feet in front of the child, and it takes a picture, and it detects what we call amblyogenic factors. What that means is that there are certain things that will cause a child to have poor vision in one or both eyes, and these are picked up in these photo screenings or instrument-based screenings. Then when the child becomes verbal, uh, and usually it's asked that at the third or fourth year visit, that they actually try and get what we call a recognition acuity vision. And that's where the child will actually read the chart and their vision will be checked that way. So my child goes to their annual pediatrician and does an eye test. Where my children go to school, they also do an eye test from the nurse. If they're passing these tests with no problem, is there a need to come see you? In most cases, no. If the history and the physical do not show any problems through the screening of the vision, we ask that that continue to be done in the medical home, that the screening be done there. There are certain conditions, uh, medical conditions, family history, or symptoms that would suggest the child needs a further examination. When there's a family history of cataracts at a young age, glaucoma, which is increased pressure in the eye, which can cause vision loss. When a child is uh, premature, that's a whole other topic. Premature babies develop eye problems, and that gets started in the NICU. That's a special category. But unless the history or the screening picks up a problem, we suggest that the screening be continued in the home unless there's a family history of certain specific diseases. I mean, you just touched upon glaucoma, and actually my dad in his 30s was diagnosed with glaucoma, and I've always gotten screened for it. What age do you even begin screening for that if there's already a family history? And if my dad has it, does that mean my children are more inclined to get it? Are they carriers? Genetically speaking, what kind of goes on? Well, you're talking about adult glaucoma, and there are no signs or symptoms of adult glaucoma, and that's why starting in young adulthood, you start to get your pressure checked when you go to the ophthalmologist. You are at risk because you have a first-degree relative, your father. If you develop glaucoma, then your children will be at greater risk. Oh, wow. So it's important that you would get your pressure checked at least on a yearly basis because of your family history. There are other forms of glaucoma. Some children are born with glaucoma. Glaucoma is different in that there are symptoms and signs that the pediatrician or the mother or the father will pick up. Do you mind if I ask, what are typically the signs? The eyes are unusually large. The child may have cloudiness of the front of their eye and they are very sensitive to light and tear frequently. So that is a, it's a different disease than adult glaucoma. There's also juvenile glaucoma, and there's glaucoma that can occur with certain syndromes or other problems. But there are usually signs and symptoms that alert everyone to the fact that there's a problem. Wow. In the medical uh, office, you know, we see a lot of kids with headaches, and the first question we think of is, is there a visual problem? And we say, you know, get your vision checked. Are you seeing headaches as a presenting symptom of vision problems or not so much? I would say not so much. That's a very frequent thing that when a child's having headaches, they're referred to have their eyes examined. It's also not just do they need glasses, but I think that the pediatrician is often asking us to uh, look for other signs of neurologic disease, and I think there's value in that. But actually, unless there's a severe visual problem, eye strain causing a headache is really pretty rare. My son is 10 years old. He's nearsighted and wears glasses, and we go to his annual checkup. How quickly can a healthy 10-year-old's vision change? Like, is going once a year enough, or should I be taking him more often? 
Well, the progression of myopia is a very hot topic these days. There's been a lot of new research done on progression of myopia. In most cases, the once-a-year visit is good, and that's the perfect timing. If your child complains that they can't see at a distance prior to that, it's reasonable to call and, and bring them in sooner. But in general, once a year is good timing for that. Amy, how has he picked up the need for glasses? He didn't pass the school's test, but he had passed his annual visit a few months prior to that at his doctor's. If a child has a growth spurt or they're about to have a growth spurt, you may see a faster progression in their myopia. And again, there are various forms of myopia or nearsightedness where people have difficulty seeing far away, but they can see up close. And sometimes the family history can tell you whether you're going to have a fast progression. There are a lot of studies now being done about what can slow myopia. Many of these are done in Singapore. In Singapore, nearsightedness is an epidemic. The most recent studies show that there are two things that may help progression of myopia. And this is not just for somebody who's mildly nearsighted, but highly nearsighted. And they are, number one, installation of a drop in medication that may dilate the pupil and inhibit the focusing, and somehow that inhibits progression of the myopia. This was validated in uh, the Singapore studies. The other one is very interesting in that playing outside has been statistically shown in Singapore and also replicated in Australia that playing outside for an hour to two hours per day may slow the progression of myopia. In most cases, nothing wrong with sending your child outdoors to play, as long as they have a safe environment and they wear their UV protection. So we really encourage parents for a variety of reasons to put down the tablet and go outside and play. You know, you just made me think of something. My oldest child, who's 10, she's a girl, every year we take her for, well, actually she goes twice a year because she has juvenile idiopathic arthritis and we watch for uveitis. And we just noticed that she has a spot on her one eye, and we're keeping a close eye on it for precautionary. How often do you see melanoma or, you know, cancer in children's eyes? Does it happen that often? True melanoma, a nevus that has become benign nevus or collection of melanocytes becoming malignant and turning into a melanoma or cancer is very rare in a child. That's good to know. <laughs> yes. The benign nevus on the white of the eye, which can be clear or it can be pigmented and they become more pigmented as a child approaches puberty, are just like a nevus anywhere else on your body. People worry that it's more dangerous somehow on the eye. You can also have a nevus inside the eye and not just on the surface but they have a very low rate of malignancy, and it's a 1% chance uh, every year for the rest of your life, just like a mole or a nevus anywhere else. We suggest UV protection with sunglasses that say on the tag that they protect against 100% uh, UVA and UVB, and a brimmed hat are excellent ways to protect your child's eyes uh, against the UV light. Well, speaking of that, I mean, my kids are huge swimmers, so we spend hours every day in the pool. And obviously, they can't wear protective eyewear. Do we have a concern there? They're you know, all over the place. They're running around. Is there anything we can do? I think as much as possible, you want them to pop their sunglasses on when they're outside. We all should be doing that, not just children, but sure. adults also. UV light increases your chances of cataracts. It also, in people who are genetically predisposed, will increase their chances of developing something later in life called macular degeneration, which is the highest cause of vision loss for most adults. Speaking, actually, I have another question. 
my son, who's turning eight, at the age of, I think he was seven, he got his first pair of glasses and it was just for reading and up close work. He was so excited and loved them because it wasn't, you know, he got to wear something new and it wore off. And then he fights us wearing them. And I'm concerned that he's going to start to have more vision issues because he's not wearing them. And his optometrist said the same thing. You really need to wear them, buddy, just so that, you know, we don't create more problems. How do I motivate him to wear them more often when he needs to? I think you might want to get a second opinion about whether he actually needs the glasses uh, for reading. Okay. Sometimes the way a child might respond during an exam may make someone think that they need glasses for near, but it's really the rare child who needs glasses just for reading. That's called an accommodative insufficiency, and it's really not that common. So I would maybe get another opinion about that. I think there's ways, though, to help children want to wear their glasses. I think it's really important for a parent to be positive about it right from the start. Children really pick up on any negativity or concern that the parent may have. The second way is when you're choosing the glasses frames, get it down to two or three choices and let the child make the final choice and they feel that they have some say over the glasses and then they'll get some ownership. So I think that those are are ways to encourage Sometimes rewards are good to get a child into a habit of wearing their glasses. Okay. And what about that, Sharon, about Tiffany's question? You don't wear your glasses, your vision will get worse. Well, actually, we get this both ways. We often get well-meaning grandmothers and aunts when we put glasses on a very young child, telling the family, oh, don't let your child wear those glasses at such a young age. They'll become dependent on the glasses. And then the opposite, people say, you know, if you don't wear your glasses, your eyes are going to get worse. And actually, neither is true. There's a natural progression. Most children are farsighted, which means that they have to focus a little bit far away and a little bit up close. That farsightedness will increase up to age seven, then stay the same for a year or so. Then it will start to decrease around puberty, decrease even more, and that's when we often see somebody become nearsighted. That pattern may be a little different for people who have a genetic predisposition to be nearsighted, but not wearing your nearsighted glasses does not make you get more nearsighted. Wearing contact lenses does not make you stop getting nearsighted. And these are all genetic situations that are not going to be affected by wearing or not wearing the glasses. At what age should you even start wearing contact lenses? I mean, I know I've had glasses since I was in fourth grade, and I started in seventh grade. But I've heard the kids are starting a lot younger than that. Am I correct on that? Yes, that's a great question. Parents often ask the question, you know, when should my child start wearing contact lenses? First, the child has to be motivated, not the parent. Right? <laughs> That's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> that is a whole other problem. Uh, because sometimes I turn to the child and the child looks very frightened about the thought of touching their eye. So they have to be comfortable with it. And I tell parents, you know, you know your child best. So when you feel that your child has a good enough hygiene or can, you know, is taking care of themselves otherwise by brushing their teeth and taking care of their hair and then doing things that tell you that every day they're going to take care of those contact lenses, that's when your child should wear contact lenses. In most cases, kids can be really successful. I just think that parents need to trust themselves that they know that. And the reason for that is children or adults who don't care for their lenses properly can get infections of the cornea called an ulcer. It's very painful. 
requires daily visits to the ophthalmologist, medication in the eye every hour, and in some cases can cause a scarring of the cornea or perforation and need a corneal transplant. So that's very rare, but it can occur, and it occurs when the care is not good. So I usually explain that to the child. That's why it's important, and I emphasize that if they take care of their lenses properly, they won't have those problems. We just scared you. Yeah, right. (laughs) Hopefully everyone's going to be fine. (laughs) But, you know, unfortunately, I have some history of some genetic, I I don't know if they're even genetic, but just eye issues in my family. Both of my mom's brothers had night blindness. And I'm curious, is that something that's genetic? I just know that they would struggle a lot with driving. A lot of times they couldn't drive at night. Is that something that I have to worry about for my children? Congenital stationary night blindness is a degenerative process of the retina, and people often have difficulty at night. The rod cell of the retina is a problem. There are a number of different genetic patterns to this problem. Some children are picked up in infancy, and there's no doubt what's going on there because those children have eyes that jiggle or move back and forth. That's called nystagmus. And those children, their vision may vary. Then other people, it develops later in life. How it's diagnosed is through what's called an electroretinogram, or ERG, and that's done in the ophthalmologist's office or for some children who are younger and can't cooperate in the operating room under general anesthesia. And uh, there will be a certain pattern on that test that will indicate that the child has that problem. Right now, there is no cure for this problem. We encourage families, though, who have children with a genetic disorder to have an evaluation, to have a diagnosis made, and to get genetic testing done. This is really important in this day of gene therapy and other therapies. When these trials start, you have to have a very specific documentation of what disease you have, and you have to have genetic testing and the other tests to prove it. If a new trial opens, sometimes it's limited. So we encourage families to have all that information at the ready in case a trial opens. My husband was diagnosed with a lazy eye as a young child, and he's always worn glasses. He never had surgery for it. None of my kids have it. I don't know a whole lot about it. I'm even curious, are they carriers? Is that another genetic condition? That's also a great question. The first thing we need to do is define what you mean by lazy eye. And why I say that is that people use that term to mean a lot of different things. Some people use it to mean that uh, the child has a droopy eyelid. Some people mean it that one of the eyes goes in towards the nose or out towards the ear. Another is poor vision in one eye. So the first thing when we have a family come in, they tell us that their child has a lazy eye. We ask them to describe what they notice. So that's the first thing. In most cases, they mean an eye that crosses in or drifts out. Is that what in your family? Yeah, my husband's eye turns into his nose when he doesn't wear his glasses. Correct, and that's the uh, most common form of strabismus is the general term we use for eyes that are misaligned. An eye may cross in, drift out, be too high or too low. The form that you wear glasses to control is called accommodative esotropia. If I see 20 children in a day, probably eight or nine of the kids that I see that day will have accommodative esotropia. In two-thirds of the cases, glasses alone will control the crossing. In one-third, children may need surgery to help keep the eyes straight along with the glasses. And it usually does run in families. The genetics of it is not specifically worked out, but it does run in families. If you have to go the route of surgery, is it a really big deal? 
How involved? Parents often ask me, is this minor surgery? And I tell them that if it's your child going back to the operating room, nothing is minor. It's true. We take the same precautions for eye muscle surgery uh, in the operating room that we take for somebody having a heart transplant. There's lots of safety built into the process. As an experienced pediatric ophthalmologist who would be doing that type of surgery, we have special training to do that type of surgery, use special instruments and techniques to make it safe as we can for that surgery, and have been doing this type of surgery for years, uh, have done many of these types of surgery. So what we like to say is that it's a commonly done surgery. There are certainly risks to surgery, and the pediatric ophthalmologist would go through those risks with you prior to the surgery. So this lazy eye where the eye drifts, it could be picked up pretty early and things would be done for that to prevent it from progressing? Yes, it depends on what type of strabismus there is. One is, as we talked about, accommodative esotropia already. The other is congenital esotropia, and that's crossing that usually occurs before the age of six months. And that is usually picked up by the parents and the pediatrician. Frequently, children have a wide nasal bridge, and that makes it look like their eyes are crossing because it covers some of the white when they look off to one side. That's called pseudostrabismus or pseudoesotropia, false crossing. The pediatrician or the pediatric ophthalmologist can look at the light reflex, the corneal light reflex, and determine whether it's true crossing or false crossing. A newborn baby, after the age of two to three months, you really shouldn't be seeing crossing. Prior to that, you can see intermittent crossing that would be considered normal. But once a child is, say, three months old, you really should not be seeing crossing. If you are, you need to bring that up to your pediatrician, have the pediatrician check them, and then, if indicated, they'll be referred to the pediatric ophthalmologist. There's also exotropia, or drifting out of the eye, and that can occur at any age. And again, there's a laundry list of types of exotropia. And it does occur intermittently sometimes. So, you know, either the eyes crossing in or drifting out, parents are the best judge of what's going on with their child. And I would be persistent if the pediatrician says, well, I don't see anything, but you're sure you see something. I think that, you know, you need to persist in getting the pediatrician to look at the child. Another great thing this day and age is to take pictures or a video. We love that when families come in and sometimes they email us a picture if it's a current patient or, you know, they take a video on their phone of a funny eye movement that they see. It really makes the evaluation much more complete. My dad also has retinitis pigmentosa. Is that another? <laughs> I have a whole laundry list in my family. Um, is that another genetic disorder or is that something that can pass on to my kids or even me? It is a genetic disorder. It is, again, a, a retinal degeneration. Again, it has a very variable way it presents. In some people, it presents at a young age. In others, they can go until they're 50 or 60 before years of age before they would notice any symptoms. It causes peripheral vision loss to sometimes where uh, somebody just has a very small central island or sometimes even that small central island disappears. It can also be complicated by cataracts and something called macular edema. Uh, the macular edema and the cataracts are actually can be treated medically and surgically. So it's very important that somebody with retinitis pigmentosa continue to see their ophthalmologist. That way, things that may be affecting their vision on top of the retinitis pigmentosa can be improved. Also, people with retinitis pigmentosa need to be referred for vision services so they can make the most of their uh, vision. There'll be help with reading and magnification, different things that can be done. 
There is some treatment with vitamins, although one of the early studies with vitamins uh, in retinitis pigmentosa actually showed a worsening with certain types of vitamins. So if vitamins are being used uh, as a therapy, it needs to be closely monitored. It can be diagnosed because it does run in families, even prior to losing vision. And that is, again, with an electroretinogram, which is a test that can be done at any age. It can be done under anesthesia in young children. It can be uh, done awake in uh, cooperative children. If the electroretinogram was showing a retinal degeneration, that person would then be referred to the genetics doctors for them to diagnose it by genetic testing. Uh, again, so if a trial becomes available, that person would be ready to enter that trial. Wow. Thank you. Well, we certainly peppered Dr. Lehman with a lot of great questions. Thanks to our moms. Uh, Dr. Lehman, any final words for moms out there? Any passing thought that you'd want them to think about in terms of their kids' eyes? I think that sometimes, especially moms, discount their observations of their children. There is no better uh, observer of their child than their mother and father. So if you think that there's a problem, you need to trust yourself and discuss that with your pediatrician. Great. Well, thanks so much, Sharon, for being on Pediatric Chat. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future Pediatric Chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more Pediatric Chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening.